Now remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is also our sermon text, John 5, and I'll start in verse 25. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we love your word because it is truth and we can stand on it. Help us to understand what you have said to us so that we can understand you, who you are, what you have done for us and what you're doing through us. We ask this fervently and humbly in Jesus name. Amen. Please be seated. You can keep your Bibles open to John 5. Today we'll consider verses 25 to 29. We keep coming to what seems to be monumental passages. I keep wanting to speed up, but I'm forced to slow down and take these paragraphs in smaller chunks. Maybe next week we'll take a bigger chunk, Lord willing. Or the next time we're in John, that is. And today is an especially exciting sermon. I always enjoy preparing for sermons when the sermon preparation takes me to several different passages of Scripture. In the Old Testament and New Testament. You'll see the outlines a little bit different today. Make six observations. They started out as observations and maybe morphed a little bit into points, theological points and implications. And I jotted down the scriptures for you that I'll be referencing and in some cases turning to and reading and at least alluding so you can have those in your notes. You'll also note that I sent out the handout in an email this morning so that you could have it on your device if you want to take notes or look at it that way. I try to remember to do that from now on. Every person who has ever died and every person who will ever die will be raised from the dead by Jesus someday. And they will be raised by the powerful voice of Jesus someday. Every dead person will one day hear the voice of Jesus Christ, the voice of the Son of God, calling him or her out of the grave. And at that point, everyone will receive his or her resurrection body. Every person who has ever been born will receive a resurrection body. And the Son of Man will execute judgment on each person. Those who have done good will enter into the resurrection of eternal life. Those who have done evil will enter into the resurrection of judgment or condemnation. Our passage today has the double effect of making us joyful in anticipation of what is to come, 
and making us sober-minded at the same time. For those of us who know Jesus, who are bearing the fruit of righteousness, this passage causes us to look forward to the, with joy to the day when Jesus will give us our resurrection body and he will usher us into his everlasting kingdom. Will there be no more tears, no more sadness, no more pain, no more suffering, no more sin? Only complete bliss, happiness. But this passage also is a sobering reminder of what will happen to those who don't know Jesus, who don't produce the fruit that is in keeping with repentance. Their destiny will be a never ending pain and sadness and suffering, separation from God. They'll move further and further away from happiness, bliss, joy. Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Son of Man. He is the life giver and the judge. One day you will receive your resurrection body and stand before Him in His presence. And He will pronounce to you and to everyone your individual unique judgment. He will have a judgment that is just for you. That judgment will have everything to do with how you live in this life. So are you living in terms of that final judgment? Is it on your mind? Do you order your life with that final judgment in mind? Do your words and your actions reflect a healthy fear for the one who will judge you and every single person that he has ever made? We need to remember where we are in John's Gospel and what's been happening so far. Beginning of chapter 5, Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. And this gained him the ire and the indignation of all the Jews, the Jewish leaders. And in verses 17 to 24, after this miracle, after this healing, after he made this man well, Jesus responded to their condemnations by escalating the discussion rather than diffusing it. Instead of cooling things down, Jesus fanned the flames of their fury. He claimed to be equal with God the Father. He claimed to share in God's essence, His being, His nature. He claimed to do those things that only God does and can do. They were outraged. They considered Him not the Son of God, the Son of Man, but a blasphemer. They wanted to kill Him. And in the middle of that passage, that key passage on who Jesus is, who the Christ is, in verses 21 and 22, Jesus introduced two concepts that he fleshes out in verses 25 to 29. And these two concepts have to do with the son's role in raising the dead and in judging everyone. You may remember that from a couple weeks ago. So look up at verses 21 and 22 real quick before we dive into our passage. It said, Jesus says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. So here we see the Son doing what the Father does. Verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Verses 25 to 29 are an expansion of those two verses. 21 and 22. Verses 25 to 29 in those 
five verses, Jesus unfolds the meaning of verses 21 and 22. He explains further, further what it means that he is the life giver and the final judge of every person who will ever be born. So the way we're going to approach this passage is to walk through it verse by verse and make some observations and theological implications along the way. And there are six, as you'll note in your handout. The first one, Jesus will raise every dead person. He will raise all dead people, both believers and unbelievers. He will raise all the dead, not just some, not just believers. Look at verse 25, most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. Now, if you're reading through John, maybe for the first time, especially, and you get to this verse, what are you thinking? Your, your, your first reaction is to think that Jesus is talking in verse 25 there about believers. He's talking about the resurrection when when he comes and the dead in Christ will meet him. In the air, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 4. And we think he's only talking about believers. But by the time you get down to the end of this paragraph, Jesus has filled out the picture for you. And see, and you see he's actually talking about unbelievers as well as believers. Everyone, all the dead. Look at verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. It says all there. And they will come forth, verse 29, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment or condemnation. So who does this say will be raised by the voice of Jesus? All who are in the graves will hear and come forth. And verse 29 makes it clear that it's believers and unbelievers. Those who are raised to eternal life and those who are raised to eternal judgment. This is what Daniel 12 says has already taught us, and we read that a few weeks ago, Daniel 12, 2 says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This is also what Paul said to Felix when he was on trial in Acts 24. Paul says in Acts 24, 15, There will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. The main point here. On this first observation is that Jesus will raise all the dead. All the dead who have ever lived will be summoned from the grave by the life-giving voice of Jesus. Everyone, let that sink in. Jesus will raise millions, billions of people. Millions of Russians and Egyptians and Mexicans and Japanese and Jews and Italians and Americans and Australians. He will... Raise Adam and Eve and Abel and Cain. He will raise the very last person who will ever die. Whoever that will be. He will raise Noah and Nimrod and Nebuchadnezzar. He will raise Abraham and Aristotle and Alexander the Great. He will raise the prophet Isaiah and Judas Iscariot and Julius Caesar. He will raise Buddha, Muhammad and Gandhi. And they will have to answer to Jesus, their judge. They'll have to bow the knee as well. Everyone will receive their resurrection body. And they will stand before Jesus and then receive their everlasting judgment. 
That includes you and me. There are no exceptions to this. Observation number two, every dead person will rise when they hear the voice of Jesus. The voice of Jesus plays an important role in this passage and the resurrection of the dead. The last part of verse 25 says the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And the last part of verse 28 reiterates this. All who are in the grave will hear hear his voice. Now, don't get hung up on the in the graves. It's not saying that if you're not in a grave, then you're not going to be called forth. This includes those who have been cremated, those who have been um, decomposed completely or not in a grave as we think of it. It's a reference to the dead, everyone who is dead. First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians 4.16 says that when the Lord Jesus comes, He will descend with a shout or with a commanding cry or one translation with a cry of command. Now there's some debate about who is doing the shouting in First Thessalonians 4.16. Is it the shout of the Father? Is it the shout of the archangel? Is it the shout of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself? We don't have to settle that debate, but John 5.25 and 28 establish the distinct possibility that it's the Lord Jesus doing the shouting when He returns because Jesus will be raising the dead with His loud voice when He returns in glory. The voice that will raise every dead person from the grave is the same voice, the same word that is holding everything together right now. And it's going to be holding everything together forever. Hebrews 1.3, remember, says that Jesus is right now upholding the entire universe, the cosmos, by the word of His power. Colossians 1.17 says that all things are holding together in Jesus. The powerful word of Jesus is keeping everything intact. The invisible and the visible. And it will raise every human from the dead one day. Now let's think for a minute. Let's just meditate on this life-giving voice. The life-giving voice of Jesus, the Son of God. The history of this voice goes all the way back to the very beginning. Back to creation. When there was absolutely nothing except God, the powerful word of Jesus spoke everything into existence from nothing. The voice of the Son of God spoke things into existence, including life. The life of the animals and the humans was created by this voice, by this word. And ever since creation, this same voice has been upholding everything that it made, that it created by means of this powerful word that it speaks. This voice speaks a powerful word. The voice of Jesus holds everything together by this powerful word. Everything obeys this voice. And on the final day, decomposed bodies will obey this voice, the voice that created the world will recreate a new world and rebuild, rebuild new bodies. This should stir up awe 
in us. And wonder. It should evoke fear and worship in you because these truths we're talking about are in effect right now. Right now. This is going on in you and in creation. Jesus is holding you together right now. And one day He will recreate you and make you stand before Him in judgment. Does your life reflect an awareness of this reality? Is there anything more important in your life than this reality? Do you believe this awesome truth? Does it drive you to your knees? Does it make you want to deal with your sin? It should. Does it compel you to worship Jesus as your Lord and your God? As your Creator and your Savior? If not, then you haven't begun to grasp, to appreciate what Jesus is saying in verse 25. Observation number three, Jesus gives life now. A foretaste of the resurrection is already here. We're still in verse 25. It says that the hour is coming and now is. It's not just coming. It now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. What's Jesus mean when he says that the hour, the coming hour, the future hour, now is? In what sense are the dead already hearing the voice of Jesus and living? What's he mean here? Well, there are a lot of implications here and we can't get to all of them. But when Jesus came to earth, when he left heaven, came to earth, he brought eternal life, resurrection life with him. And he started giving this eternal resurrection life right away beginning of his ministry that's what his his ministry is really all about him giving that life jesus showed in his ministry the sorts of things that will characterize the age to come the not yet in the age to come we can call it the resurrection in the resurrection or age to come there will be no more death demons or diseases no more death no more demons no more diseases so what do we see jesus doing in his earthly ministry we see him reversing death and casting out demons and healing diseases he is reversing the curse in the gospels he's raising the dead and destroying the devil and doing away with diseases this is what he came to do he came to inaugurate The resurrection, resurrection life through his works, through his ministry, through his life and his death and his resurrection. In the person and work of Jesus, especially his death and resurrection, the end of all things, the very end has invaded the here and now. That's how we need to see the ministry of Jesus. The future is pressing in on the present. The not yet is in some ways already here. As Jesus puts it in verse 25, the hour is coming and now is. It's both and. And there's a narrative in John's Gospel that illustrates this wonderfully. Can you think of a story in John 
that demonstrates the now is aspect of this resurrection life that Jesus is infusing into the old creation. Is there anyone in John's gospel who is dead and then comes to life when he hears the voice of the Son of God? What about the story of Lazarus in John 11? Since we're close to that, you can go ahead and flip over a few pages to John 11. And we'll start reading in verse 23. Lazarus has been dead for four days. And when Jesus shows up, he tells Lazarus' sister, Martha, in John 11:23, Your brother will rise again. Now, Martha knows her Bible. She knows her resurrection theology. From passages like Daniel 12. Two and others in the Old Testament. So she says to Jesus in verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Martha thinks that she gets what Jesus is saying, but she only gets half of it. She agrees with Jesus that the hour is coming when the dead will rise. She knows that her brother Lazarus will be raised at the end of history, but that's not all Jesus is saying. He's also saying that the hour already is here. It now is when the dead will rise. Her brother Lazarus will rise again now because the future resurrection life is already here in the person and work of Jesus. So Jesus spells it out for Martha in John 11, verses 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. What Jesus is saying here is that the future hour of resurrection has broken into the present. It's already here because I am here, Jesus says. And I am the resurrection and the life. In fact, he even says in that verse that we just read that if you believe, there's a sense in which you never die. Yes, your body will die. But you never lose that eternal life because you're in Jesus. You're dead in Jesus, which means you are fundamentally alive. And then Jesus goes to Lazarus's tomb and he tells them to move the stone. And down in verse 43, it says that Jesus cried a loud voice. Here we see that voice again shouting. He shouted with his voice, Lazarus, come forth. And then 44 says, and he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was wrapped in a cloth. So did you see the reference there to the voice of the Son of God and to the grave? Jesus calling him out of the grave with his voice. In John's gospel, the hour is already here when the dead hear the voice of Jesus and they come out of the graves to live. And yet this is just a foretaste of what will happen on the final day. You see, Lazarus didn't receive his final resurrection body there. On the final day, when the dead in Christ will rise from their graves and meet our Lord, it will be all believers with eternal resurrection bodies. We will rise just as obediently And just as bodily as Lazarus did in John 11. 
the commanding cry of Jesus will call us forth from our graves and it will recreate and rebuild our bodies with the matter of the new creation. So you don't have to worry that, yeah, our you know, bodies decompose and those molecules are used in other things. Jesus has all of that worked out. The voice of God's Son will exercise its sovereignty, its complete control over death. It will utter its command and it will create the very thing that it commands. In the commanding, it will be created. Just as it was at the first creation. In the commanding of the thing, it will come into existence. The voice that created the heavens and the earth out of nothing will recreate your body and and it will reunite your soul with that resurrection body. We also get a foretaste of this when Jesus gives spiritual life. Everyone since Adam and Eve has been conceived spiritually dead. We need to think about the spiritual implications here. The spiritual death that Jesus came to reverse. When our parents conceived us, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We did not inherit eternal life from our parents. We don't have that life until Jesus gives us that new life. Ephesians 2 says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And then down to verse four, God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive. He raised us from the dead together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See all this resurrection language. Your salvation is a resurrection event. And anticipates the full resurrection that you will receive at the end. Everyone is conceived dead in trespasses and sins. But Jesus is in the business of making people alive. Calling people out of their spiritual graves. Giving them resurrection life even now. John 3, 15 and 16 say that whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life now. And we could look at several other passages that say the same thing. Eternal life is not just a future reality. And you don't have to be Lazarus or the, or the little boy or little girl that Jesus raised from the dead to experience the resurrection life now. You have it because you have been Raised from your spiritual death. It's a present reality because Jesus is eternal life. And Jesus is in you and you are in Jesus. You share in his life now. So if you have Jesus, if you're connected to Jesus, if you are united to Jesus, you have a vital connection to him, then you have eternal life. If you belong to Jesus, you have resurrection life. Right now, already, because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Observation number four. Jesus can raise the dead because he is the son of God. This this passage you'll see refers to Jesus as 
the Son of God and the Son of Man. And we're going to look at those two titles here in the next two points or observations. Verse 26 tells us why the Son can give life to the dead. It says, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Now this, this verse is kind of doing two things. It's kind of saying two things, but one is primary. I'll talk about the non-primary thing first. This verse, when it says that the Father has granted to the Son, is, is making mention of the fact, the theological reality, that Jesus is eternally begotten. He's eternally proceeding from the Father. The Father is eternally begetting and giving to the Son everything He is and has. His works and His being. So we can see we need to see the Father as eternally first, eternally prime, eternally original. But that doesn't mean that Jesus had a beginning, that at some point in time he then originated from the Father, that or that the Father begat begot Jesus at some point, the Son at some point in time. This is an eternal begottenness. Begotten, but not made. Because he's of one substance, one being with the Father. He's eternal. And so, while it makes mention to that theological reality in, in the sense that the Father comes from the Son, the main point that it's making, the primary point, is that the Son is in himself the source, the source of life. He has life in himself. In the exact same way the Father does. Yes, it's granted from the Father because that's just how the Father-Son relationship works. But it doesn't make His authority or His eternality, His godness any less. Because notice the same phrase, life in Himself, is used for the Father and the Son. They equally have life in themselves. So the Son doesn't just channel life from the Father He's not just a conduit. He is life. Life comes from the Son, not just through the Son. So when we think of Jesus raising the dead by that mighty voice, we need to think of Him doing this by means of the divine, eternal life that He has in Himself and that He has had in Himself forever. Remember John 1, 4. In him was life, and this life was the light of man. In John 1, 4 is saying this life was in him forever. It never wasn't in him. The Son of God has life-giving power that does not originate outside of himself, not outside the Son, even though in some sense it's granted by the Father. This is a Trinitarian mystery that we can't get to the bottom of. Observation number five. Jesus can judge every human because he is the son of man. Verse 27 says that God the Father has given God the Son the authority to execute judgment. Particularly final judgment. Why? On what basis? Because the Son of God is also the Son of Man. The title Son of Man is a Sort of a complex title. 
that has various meanings and various contexts. And that goes that's not just in the New Testament. That goes back to the Old Testament where son of man can refer to humanity, a, a man, son of Adam. Or in Daniel 7, it's more of an exalted title that has it, it communicates that the person there in Daniel 7, the man there in Daniel 7, 13 and 14 is more than human. He seems to have divine qualities. So in Daniel 7, 13, God bestows on one like the son of man, the authority to rule and to judge. So this is son of man is an exalted title, even a divine title in Daniel 7. But one of the interesting things about reading the Bible, especially the New Testament, is that in some contexts, this is why it's a little bit complicated, in some contexts, the title Son of God is actually highlighting the humanity of Jesus. And the title Son of Man is highlighting, as in Daniel 7, the divinity of Jesus. Now that seems backward to us, doesn't it? We think of the title Son of God indicates the divinity of Jesus and Son of Man indicates the humanity of Jesus. Son of God, Son of Man, Godness and His humanity, right? But in the Old Testament, the title Son of God referred to the Davidic king, a mere human. Now, of course, it points to Jesus, the final Davidic king, who is not a mere human, but it's used in the Old Testament to refer to, for example, Solomon, the sons of David. It didn't refer to God, the son in the Old Testament, referred to son of David. And the title son of man, as we've seen in Daniel, doesn't highlight the humanity of Jesus. It actually emphasizes his exalted nature, his divinity. Or at least that he's no mere human. But in our passage this morning... The title Son of God in verse 25 is a reference to the divinity of Jesus. It's highlighting Jesus as the Son of God, God the Son. And the title Son of Man in verse 27 is a reference to the humanity of Jesus. It's highlighting that Jesus is a son of Adam. He's fully man. Okay, I know that's a little bit complex And maybe getting into the weeds, but it's important. Here's why. Here's why all that's important. That we see Son of God as a reference to His divinity and Son of Man as a reference to His humanity. And one reason, by the way, that that I think we should see Son of Man as a reference to His humanity is that Son of God has already been used to refer to His divinity. But here's why it's important. Because here's the real question. Why? Why? Does Jesus get to execute judgment? That's the question that Jesus is answering. How does being a man qualify Jesus to execute judgment? We could ask it that way as well. And the answer is that because God in his perfect wisdom has decided that the judge of mankind, the one who will pass judgment on every human someday, must himself be A vulnerable man. A man himself. Fully human. That's why Paul says on Mars Hill in Acts 17.31 
God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has ordained. God's going to judge the world by a man. He has given assurance of this by raising him, that man, from the dead. Of course, that's talking about Jesus, the son of man. So in his perfect wisdom, God has appointed a man to judge the world. The final judge must be a man. But, but there's something that's even more important than that in the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't just teach that a man must judge the world. It teaches that a slain man must judge the world. The John who wrote John chapter 5 also wrote Revelation chapter 5. And I want you to turn there. Please turn to Revelation 5 as we consider the worthiness of the slain Lamb of God, the slain Son of Man. We're going to be looking at the first nine verses in Revelation 5. I thought about just reading select verses, but I'm just going to read the whole passage to you, with you. Read with me, starting in Revelation 5, verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne... This is God the Father, by the way, on the throne. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Okay, now remember what these seven seals are because it's important. The seven seals represent the judgment of God. The one who is worthy to open the scroll and break open these seals, these judgments that are unfolding, that are going to unfold, will be the one who is worthy to execute judgment on the world. Who is it? Verse 3, and no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And what that means is no one that's been mentioned so far. So I wept much. John's weeping because there's no one who can execute this judgment. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to break its seven seals. Verse 6, and I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Verse 8, now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Verse 9, and they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain. We'll stop there. For you were slain. You were killed. Jesus is worthy to judge the world He's worthy to open the scroll. He's worthy worthy to break the seals of judgment against all of mankind because he was slain. The judge of the world must be 
man who has died. The kingly lion of Judah must first be the crucified lamb of God. The judging son of God must first be the judged son of man. The man whom God has appointed as judge is the man whom God first judged. You see, the one who will judge everyone first took that judgment upon himself. That's the gospel of the Son of God and the Son of Man. The man who will afflict eternal wrath on unbelievers is the man who was stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God's wrath on the cross so that He might grant eternal life to those who believe in Him, those who trust in Him, to those who are vitally connected to Him and walking with Him. The judge has become the judged. The judge, capital J, judge, has become the one who is judged so that you could escape his eternal judgment. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Observation number six. Jesus will judge you in accordance with what you have done. Look at verses 28 and 29. Back in John 5 now. John 5, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now this, this might offend our Protestant or our Reformed ears if we're not careful. We don't hear what Jesus is saying and, or if we hear what He's not saying. Or if we misunderstand what the rest of the Bible is saying as far as that goes. This does not mean that we gain eternal life by our good works. By our fruitfulness. Our obedience. No one will ever be saved on the basis of obedience. It's impossible. It will not happen. It cannot happen. Your holiness, your holiness is essential, but it's not what saves you it's not your holiness is not what justified you before god in the first place and it will not be what earned you your resurrection life at the end your salvation in this life and in the life to come is based solely 100 percent on the righteousness of jesus christ on the cross of christ on the blood of christ that's the only thing That can save you. You can't contribute to that 1% or 1% of 1%. You are saved by grace through faith. So Jesus is not saying that you'll be saved by your good works. that That the righteous will be saved and have eternal life, resurrection of life by your good works. He's saying that people who are saved will obey Jesus and do good works and they'll be recognized by those good works. Their obedience will be a distinguishing characteristic on the last day. If you have been saved by grace through faith, then God has empowered you to obey, to produce the fruit of the Spirit, to do good. And this outward evidence, even though it's not perfect, distinguishes you from those who do not know God. And who only do evil. Good works are not what save you. But they are necessary. Because the saved do good works. 
why Hebrews 12.14 says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, you will not get to participate in that resurrection life on the final day. And that holiness that it's talking about there is personal holiness, personal righteousness. Of course, the righteousness of Christ is foundational. But the holiness that Hebrews 12.14 is talking about is the holiness that the personal holiness that flows out of your union with Christ, your salvation by faith in Christ, the holiness that must come forth, that will always come forth if you are saved, if you're connected to Jesus, is essential. Without it, you won't see the Lord. You won't be saved on the final day. Now, there are many Christians, perhaps many here, who think that on Judgment Day, They're just counting on the Lord to be gracious and to grant them eternal life, even though there is no holiness in their lives. Because after all, they believe in Jesus and they come to church. And we're saved by grace, not by works. So. So they're good, they think, but that's not how it works. The scripture says that without that holiness. Without a holy life, you won't see the Lord. Because there's no holiness in your life. There's no evidence that you are a true believer. There's no evidence that God has actually saved you. There's no evidence that you belong to Jesus. That you are vitally connected to Him. Because if you're vitally connected to the vine, then life, the life from that vine will be throwing, flowing through you and out of you in the form of good deeds, obedience, Growth in grace and godliness. So back to Ephesians 2. Verse 8 says that we have been saved by grace through faith. But then Paul goes on to say in verse 10. That those who have been saved have been saved for something. For what? For good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Those who walk in the good works that God prepared for them. Will receive the resurrection of life. Those who have no fruit will receive the resurrection of condemnation. God doesn't save people and forget to make them holy. If you are vitally connected to the vine, to Jesus, then you will be producing fruit. That's what Jesus says in John 15. Those who are abiding in Christ will bear much fruit, Jesus says. Are you bearing much fruit? Are you bearing more fruit this year? Than you did last year. Are you growing in the grace of God? Are you putting to death the old man. And putting on the new man. Christ Jesus. So if there's no evidence of holiness. If you aren't a fruit bearing Christian. Then. You can't know. You can't have assurance that you're vitally connected to Jesus. And you need to think about what that means. For you on judgment day. Which track are you on? There's only two. Are you growing in righteousness? Because the life of the vine is in you. Do your deeds confirm, verify your salvation? Is there evidence in your life that the spirit of God is at work in you? On the last day. Jesus says he will look at your works. They, they matter. You will look at your life. Not for perfection. Of course not. Not, prefer, not for perfection. 
but simply for evidence that you were abiding in the vine, trusting in him, resting in him, believing in him, feeding and drinking on him, from him, being satisfied in him and bearing the fruit of his Holy Spirit. So at the end of history, there will be two. Two categories of people. At the end of history, there'll be two categories. And you'll be in one of those two categories. Everyone will. Those who have done good in this life, because they are vitally connected to the vine, will go to the resurrection of eternal life. And that's where they'll get to be forever and ever. Those who have done evil in this life, because they were not vitally connected to the vine, will go to the resurrection of condemnation. And that's where they will be stuck forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this truth, this comforting and also difficult truth. Help us to walk in your spirit, to do good as we Seek to glorify your son, Jesus, who created us and who saved us. Keep us connected vitally to the vine. Preserve us in your sovereign grace. We ask for your help in Jesus name. Amen.